You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. And there's a cup of water. Who got me water? Thank you. I've also got a bottle, but this, that'll be my backup. Um, it is so good to be here. Uh, some of you may not know, but we've been, our family's been away for the last four weeks. And uh, so I'm just going to get a time. I'm not going to do a timer. I have no idea how long this is going to be. So hopefully you're, you're comfortable. But uh, yeah, it's really, really good to be back. We've been away for four weeks. Our family just completed a road trip uh, to Ontario. That's where we're from. And um, believe it or not, road tripping with four kids isn't that bad. So if that like terrifies you, just, just do it. It was actually really, really fun. And there's some strategies. So feel free to talk uh, to us after and, and we'll tell you what those strategies are. But we had a great time. It was good to see our extended family. Uh, we actually also got to see some extended church family because we attended Redemption Durham. Uh, but I got to say, it is better to come back home. Uh, it is just really good to see a bunch of you that I haven't seen in a while. We miss our church. We miss our small group. We miss our friends. And uh, it is really good to be here. And I'm excited to be uh, opening God's word uh, with you as we continue our series through the book of Esther entitled, The God Who Is Not Not There. Um, because as we study this book, we know that despite his name not being mentioned throughout, God is most certainly active and working through all the circumstances and the decisions of sinful people for his glory and the good of his people. And so this week is going to feel, uh, I trust, somewhat refreshing uh, in this part of the book, because when we look at Esther chapter 8 today, uh, we're actually going to get some much-needed clarity. Uh, so what, one of the things about road tripping is you stay in hotels and one of the challenges to sharing a hotel room with a big family with young kids is that anytime you have to get out of bed, you got to be like extremely quiet because one wrong move or uh, one loud noise and the entire piece is just uh, ruined. And I had to navigate these uh, dangerous seas a couple times. Uh, One time I decided to actually work on the sermon down in the hotel lobby and I got up and our hotel room was like pitch black. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't see anything, and I had to go find my stuff, I had to get dressed, and I had to make it and slip out, out the door, but I can't see anything. And so I, I'm like wide-eyed, and I mean, I'm sure you can imagine, I would look really silly, because it didn't matter how much I opened my eyes, I, I just couldn't see, and so I'm shuffling around, I know there's toddler toys, I know there's luggage, and, and I can see a little bit of a glow that casts a shadow. And so there's this fuzzy picture of where I'm supposed to go. I can see it a little bit, but it's not clear. And as we've read through the book of Esther so far, we get a similar picture. It's not as dangerous as toddler toys in a hotel room, but it's pretty bad in Esther. I'm, I'm totally kidding. But, but it is a very dark time for the people of God. They are scattered throughout a pagan nation where righteousness seems to go unrewarded. We've seen that. Where evil appears to be reigning without consequence. We've seen that. Some Jews at this time have just decided to compromise and just give in to the culture, uh, become Persians. Uh, Some have decided to rebuild the temple and stick to their convictions and, and go to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And others, probably like Mordecai, are just trying to hold on to their faith amidst growing 
opposition. The people of God, they lack identity. They aren't united as a nation. And there's been an edict announced that says you're all going to be annihilated. The context of Esther is pitch black darkness. And we have to remember, even as we went through up into this point in the book of Esther, the average Jew has absolutely no clue what's going on in the palace. And really, even Esther and Mordecai up to this point have no clue what God is doing either. And even for us reading uh, this book together, like we can study it. So we know that God is at work. We have an idea of what he's doing here. But if we haven't read the story before, we're still sitting here wondering, like, what happens next? Because that edict from Haman still stands. And we haven't had a scene where God just like shows up and says, hey, here's what I'm doing. I know it's confusing. I know it's dark, but here's what I'm doing. And I, I trust that you can see the parallels to our day as well. Like we live in a dark, dark nation that rejects our God. Righteousness doesn't seem to be rewarded. Evil appears to reign without consequence. And some of us are compromising and just tempted to just give in to the culture. And many of us are just trying to hold on to our faith as well. And we feel the curse of sin in this world. It's, it's heavy. It hurts to look around sometimes. And even when we open our Bibles sometimes and when we pray sometimes, like we know that God's at work. But it's so dark, and it would be nice if someone would just like turn the light on so we could get some clarity. It would be nice if God would just show up and say, hey, church, here's what I'm doing. That's what chapter 8 is for us. It's a light switch. We're going to see what happens when the light turns on for Esther and Mordecai and the people of God, the Jewish people. What happens when they can see clearly God at work? And so I've titled the message today, Clarity in the darkness. And we're going to see three responses, three things that just happen when we get clarity in dark times. So we're going to jump in. But before we do, some water and uh, let's pray. God, you, you are good and holy. And we've sung about so many awesome things today. And you are at work even when it's hard to see sometimes. So God, I just ask that through your word today, you would remind us of who you are, that you would give us clarity through your word and that your word would be a lamp unto our feet in this darkness. I pray this uh, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Please turn in your Bible to Esther chapter 8. That's Esther chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you today, totally fine. Just put your hand up, and one of our ushers will get you a Bible. So you have a copy of God's Word in front of you. It's going to be important today, as it is every day, uh, to have a copy of God's Word. If you don't own a Bible, just keep the one uh, that they're giving to you, and that's a gift. But let's jump in. Esther chapter 8. We're going to get some much-needed clarity. And the first point is this. He gives grace to the humble... So I will pray fervently. He gives grace to the humble, so I will pray fervently. Let's look at verse 1. On that day, this is the day that Haman was hanged. On that day, King Ahasuerus, which has been said differently each and every week. I, I think I got it by now. King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So we saw this last week. Haman is dead. 
And his execution was ultimately a result of his pride, which overflowed when he decided to oppose God's people. And James 4, 6 and a couple other passages tell us that God opposes the proud. And so we saw God last week oppose Haman. And he's been executed, but he's been executed as an enemy of the king, as a, as a traitor. And what that means is that all of his possessions and his property would have been forfeited to the crown. And so King Ahasuerus decides then to give Haman's house and his possessions to Esther. And Esther clearly at some point in here has said, by the way, I'm Jewish, clearly, and Mordecai is my older cousin, and all the dots are connecting. And I'm sure King Ahasuerus is like super overwhelmed, like my queen's Jewish, I didn't know. But regardless, he decides to further honor Mordecai once he learns the truth, and he promotes him to the role of prime minister, to Haman's old role. So now Mordecai is the right hand of the king, and we see Esther honor Mordecai as well and set him over the house of Haman. And this is all really, really interesting because this is an absolute, complete reversal from what we've seen in the book of Esther so far. And so we must look back and ask the question, why did this happen? And, I mean, of course the answer is because God is sovereign. But, like, what's going on here? Why does God move here and in this way? And we can see it in the reversal itself. It's a theme that is carried throughout the book of Esther. It's a theme that is crystal clear through all of Scripture. It's what we looked at last week. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So last week, God opposes Haman's pride. And this week, we see Esther and we see Mordecai giving grace because of their humility, which is most significantly seen when they decide in chapter 4 to pray and fast before Esther would approach the king. Like what, what a contrast between the end of chapter 7 and these first few verses of chapter 8. 1 Peter 5, uh, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, this is a good time, he may exalt you. And again, this is played out all through Scripture, time and time again. And the supreme example of this humility and this exaltation is that of Jesus Christ. Uh, you can turn if you like. If you can keep up today, uh, you can turn with me. Uh, Philippians 2, we're going to look at, at a couple verses where we see Jesus Christ as a perfect example of humility. It says in Philippians 2, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant." Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. We sung about this already. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is perfect humility and perfect exaltation. And this pattern continues when we look at salvation. Like We are saved when we humble ourselves before almighty God of the universe and we say, no, your will, not mine. Romans 10.9, it just spells this out so clearly. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means he is king, his way, not my way, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That means to believe that God is the same God from the beginning to the end and everything in between, it's all true. When you believe that, you will be saved. 
That kind of humility before God results in salvation and exaltation. You are lifted up, not to riches and fame in this world. Sometimes we are blessed materially, but that's not the promise. The promise, again, we talked about it this morning. Mark, you did a great job with, this, with the uh, worship service. An inheritance that is imperishable is our promise, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us. And here in Esther, it's just so clear. Like, we want clarity today, and this is so clear. God always responds to pride and humility appropriately. God always responds to pride and humility appropriately. We don't always know the time, but he always responds in the right way. And here, God brings Haman to destruction because of his pride, and he exalts Esther and Mordecai to the highest places in the kingdom because of their humility. And most importantly for us to note is that they are now protected in the presence of the king. Like the enemy has been defeated, and everyone in the palace now knows you do not touch the queen. We saw that last week. And of course you don't touch the right hand of the king, the man the king has honored. So you could argue that Esther and Mordecai are saved already from the edict of Haman. And so we want to celebrate, right? This is awesome. We, we want to celebrate, but we feel this apprehension to celebrate because we know that in the story of Esther, this isn't enough. Just as we know that in our own lives, as amazing as our salvation is, it's not enough. Now, you might be thinking, did he just say our salvation isn't enough? I did. And it might sound like I'm minimizing the cross, but, but I'm, I'm not. When we look at the book of Esther, this just makes sense. The curse still stands. Others are still doomed to perish. And so it's this perspective that allows us to praise God wholeheartedly for each individual salvation and also recognize that it's not enough. I, I love there's a challenge from Alistair Begg uh, when he goes through this passage. And he says this, So could we just gather here on the Lord's Day morning and sing songs so that we could feel good about each other? Could we do that? What about the calamity? What about the destruction? When we are saved, yes, we celebrate. And then we ask for more. And we're about to see this clearly and profoundly in the next few verses of uh, Esther chapter 8. So you can look down at verse 3. It says, Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. So what happens here looks quite simple. Esther realizes, wait, my people aren't saved. So king, I got one more request. Can you do it? Uh, and I'm going to ask you to reverse it. And, and that is essentially what's happened here. But something very significant has changed. You see, Esther has approached the king with requests three times already. And each time she has been cautious and she has been fearful. And if you remember in chapter 4, she was afraid at first because to approach the king uninvited to her meant certain death. And she wasn't wrong. So what she had to do was she had to approach the, way, approach the king in a way that was calculated, that was strategic, that was respectful, and that was self-controlled. But this time, Esther falls at the at his feet, and she weeps, and she pleads with the king. And if you look down, he hasn't even extended the scepter to say, you're welcome to speak to me yet. Go, Why would she do this? 
Does she forget how dangerous it is to come before this king? Well, of course not. What's changed is now she has experienced God's grace and her eyes are opened to see him moving. She's safe. She's saved. The king keeps granting her favor. Well, the first point we're looking at today is that God gives grace to the humble, and we've seen that. And then the response is, so I will pray fervently. Fervent prayer. It's one of our six distinctives here at Redemption Church. And uh, to pray fervently means to uh, pray with a like, hot intensity. It's to seek God with, with boldness, um, to be intense and earnest, with a sincere passion. You could say desperately. And this is how Esther approaches the king, with this kind of fervent intensity to a point where she almost loses control. You see, a quick read through the book of Esther, like I had done all my life, it's usually in one sitting, or it's like a VeggieTales thing, and you, you just, you miss this. But we have to sit back and consider what is Esther going through right now? What has she been through? So she is an orphan Jew in a pagan nation. She was ripped away from her home and forced to participate in a perverted beauty contest where success was unlikely and only available by compromising and rejecting her Jewish heritage. She would give her body to the king willingly or by force. And she does become queen, praise God. And she's watched her older cousin Mordecai in sackcloth and ashes. And then she's asked to risk her life in an attempt to reverse something that is irreversible. And she's gone without food for three days, praying and fasting before a God that she's all but rejected. She's likely endured an unimaginable amount of stress and anxiety as she's preparing to come before this unstable king who has a drinking problem. She's broken bread over the last couple days with a man who wanted the extinction of her people and a man she just found out had a gallows built to execute the father figure in her life. And it's all been reversed. The king keeps granting her favor. She's saved. Mordecai is saved. And at this moment, the light just switches on and everything starts to make sense. Like it's, it's just so clear. God has been at work and with her the whole time. In every moment, through every trial, through every sleepless night, through every decision, the God that she was brought up to love and serve, the one that she pretended not to know, when she seeks him in humility, he shows her grace because that's what God does. And so you can probably even imagine her like recalling all the stories about this God uh, told to her during her childhood, how God over and over again keeps his promises no matter how bad things got no matter how sinful his people were, Esther's eyes are opening and she comes to this realization. It's all true. Like Amidst a situation that is hopelessly dark, God is faithful and he will keep his promises. In fact, he must. Like It's who he is. God has to save his people. And that realization changes everything. Because now all she wants to do is see God's promises fulfilled. She wants to see the Jewish people saved because she knows that God loves his people and he promised to preserve his people and build an everlasting kingdom through the Messiah. And so she just breaks down overwhelmed in front of King Ahasuerus and she weeps and she pleads with him to avert the plan of Haman. And you can, you can see it in verse four. The king does grant her favor once more and she continues and says, if it please the king... 
And if I've found favor in his sight, and if everything seems right before the king and I'm pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. This is really significant for us today. Like this chapter right now is inviting us to consider the grace that's been given to us, to consider the trajectory that our lives were on before Christ entered in and to reflect on who God actually is. So like, let's actually do that. Like, take a minute right now and just think of who you were before Christ, the direction that you were headed. And, and then, like, look around. Amidst our culture, which is so dark and twisted and doomed for destruction, our culture, which continues to reject our God amid circumstances, maybe in your life, that just look hopeless, amidst the curse and death of sin and death that impacts us all in various ways, like we must, we have to understand who our God is. It's all true. And it's so clear throughout all of his word. He will supply all of our needs. He will work all things for good and conform us into the image of his son. He will provide abundant life, eternal life. He will give rest to the weary. He will bring about a day where there's no more death or no more crying and no more pain. And what's more, God will not be mocked. Justice will be served. His name will be lifted high. The blind will see. The dead will be raised. Sinners will be saved. Like when we are saved by grace through faith, the veil is lifted and our eyes are open to see that it's all true. God is who he says he is, and he will do the things he's promised. He must, because it's the only way. So Esther pleads in verse 6, and she says, For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? That outcome can't happen. I can't even bear the thought of that outcome. And we see a similar sentiment from Paul in the book of Romans This is in chapter 9, the first few verses of Romans chapter 9. Paul says this, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Paul wants to see God's promises fulfilled so badly. He wants right to be made right so badly that he's willing to be accursed and cut off, if that's what it would take. This is a desperate fervency for the promises of God. And Esther comes in one more time before the king with this fervent, intense passion and boldness and desperation. And essentially says, whatever it takes, I don't care if I die, whatever it takes, I have to see the promises of God fulfilled. And for us today, like, listen, this isn't radical. This is just what happens when you experience God's grace and he opens your eyes to see who he really is. 
Like, right must be right. Promises have to be fulfilled. Grace must be shared. More people must be saved because anything less is legitimately unacceptable for our great God. He gives grace to the humble, so I will pray fervently. Why? Because nothing else matters. So, so like, think about this. When my marriage is struggling, when I look at my kids who have yet to see, who have yet to commit their lives to Christ, when I'm struggling with uh, depression or loneliness or addiction or fear, or I'm experiencing injustice in my workplace, or when I recognize my sin, maybe even for the first time, or when I look out at this godless culture that is willfully confused about basic biology. Like, it's crazy out there. When I consider the trajectory of destruction that my neighbors and my colleagues are on, when I lose my job, when I find out it's cancer, when I lose a loved one, in all these circumstances, I find the promises of God and I pray fervently because I've experienced the grace of God and I now have clarity to see the truth. And so I plead with God to move because of who he is. And I pray at the same time with an open hand, humbly, that says, not my will, but your will. You see things I don't see. And there's nothing more, though, God, that I want than to see your light shine in the darkness and bring about the kingdom in heaven. I want it down on earth, the same as it is in heaven. And so the application here, like, it's so simple. This is a long first point. Don't Don't worry. The application is so simple. Pray fervently. And we've got such an opportunity. Like, what timing? T tonight is prayer and worship. It's at the Kalers. You can get all the details after the service. Talk to anybody, and you'll find out. So, like, let's, let's, actually, let's actually do it. Come tonight. Pray. Like, literally, what's more important than seeing God move in our world today? But we've got to keep going. We've got two more points. Clarity in the darkness. No matter how dark it gets, this is always true. God gives grace to the humble, so I will pray fervently. And he frees us from the curse of the law, so I will rejoice in hope. And here we see Esther pleads with the king to reverse the irreversible, and the king responds. Verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and in their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city 
to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all people, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. That's a big chunk, and if we had more time, uh, we would dive into the words of, of the king and contrast what it's like to approach that king compared to our king of kings, and then we go line by line through this edict and just compare Mordecai's edict to Haman's. Uh, we don't have time. Uh, so just do that this afternoon. It's fascinating. Uh, for us, what we're going to do is we're just going to focus on the implications of verse 8, where we are reminded that an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. It's significant because the edict that Esther requested to be revoked is also irrevocable. So like, how do you write an irrevocable edict to revoke an irrevocable edict? And so you just have to understand the, the idea behind this. We've talked about this a little bit uh, in previous Sundays, but um, an irreversible edict comes from the pride of believing you never make a bad decision. So the laws of the uh, Persians and the Medes were irrevocable because to revoke a law would mean that it was a bad law, and like, that's not possible. So if a king made a bad law, they would just have to deal with the consequences, and they'd arrogantly walk around saying, yeah, I know it's burning, but this is what I wanted. This is a good and a right law, and, and we're laughing, but we never do that. We never make a decision that blows up in our face, and we say, no, 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 that was the right decision. That's exactly what I wanted. I'm happy. Some of you can relate. But this was the arrogance of how the Persians operated, and it meant that Haman's edict could not be revoked because it was a good law. It was the right law. And so Mordecai's edict isn't exactly revoking Haman's. He's writing a new edict that just changes how the first edict is carried out. So there is now an order that says defending yourself on the day of Haman's edict is no longer treason. It's not rebellion against the king when someone comes knocking on your door to pick up your sword. and Ugh. You're allowed to do that now. This is really good news. The Jews now have a chance. And the king can actually say both laws are good. It is good and right for the enemies of the Jews to completely wipe them out. And it is good and right for the Jews to defend themselves. So they're going to battle and the, the Jews now have a chance. They might not be destroyed after all. But of course, you can hear it in, in my voice. It's greater than this. The response to this edict is not going to be worldly hope. Worldly hope says, I hope it doesn't rain. But like, I, I don't know. Worldly hope says, I hope my team wins. we got the best player, but like, it might not happen. This new edict isn't going to give worldly hope. It's going to give biblical hope, which is the assurance of victory. Because for those who know who their God is, who have eyes to see who God is, this edict pronounces victory. Like, this would knock the socks off of the Jews. Like, just think about it. The Jewish queen, they didn't know she was Jewish. She was hiding it. The Jewish queen has the favor of King Ahasuerus. The evil Haman, who wrote the first edict, that enemy of the Jews has been defeated. He's gone. And who replaced him? Mordecai the Jew. And now an edict comes, and it says, you are now free to defend yourself. You are freed 
from the curse of the law. How else could that happen apart from their God, Yahweh, at work? He hasn't forgotten his people. He is faithful. It's all true. And this edict will be a light switch to God's people amidst hopeless darkness. And what a picture this is for us today because we are just drawn to consider the curse of a different law, a law that spells destruction for all people, a law that is also irrevocable, not because of pride and arrogance, but because it is actually a good and right law. Do you know what the law is? It's the law of sin and death. It's God's law which defines righteousness and therefore defines sin and the punishment for sin, which is death and wrath and eternal separation from God. We studied this actually at length when we walked through the book of Romans together as a church. Romans 2.8 says, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the law of sin and death says that if you sin, you get the wrath of God. And we've all sinned, and that law is good and just, like it's the right law, and it can't be revoked. You pull that law back, and you diminish, and you minimize the holiness of God, and you minimize the justice of God. It can't happen. And yet, the opening verses of Romans chapter 8 say this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And just like in Esther, there's a new edict, another law that frees God's people from the curse of the first law. It should knock our socks off. In in Esther, God saves his people through Esther and Mordecai, but Esther and Mordecai, they're sinners. They can't save all of God's people from the destruction due to their sin. So God sends his own son, the promised Messiah, to live a perfect life, take the wrath that you and I deserve as as a perfect substitute. And when we humble ourselves and trust in Jesus as our Savior, confess him with our mouth that he is Lord, we are given the Spirit of Christ, we are given his righteousness, and we are granted peace with God as we enter into a state of perpetual, ongoing grace. So the law of sin and death is you sin, you die. The law of the Spirit of life says that every single sin, past, present, future, is paid for by the blood of Christ. That should knock our socks off. And both laws are good and just and perfect and irrevocable. And it's not just a chance. This isn't worldly hope. It's guaranteed. John 10, 28 and 29, Jesus says this. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So then... How do we respond to this freedom? Like, how do we respond to this amazing grace that's been given to us? I will rejoice in hope. Like, that's the only, that's the only response. Romans 5, um, the first five verses of Romans 5, it says this. Again, if you can keep up, go ahead and flip, flip along with me. Uh, it says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The response to this news is to rejoice. So let's examine ourselves for a minute. Are are we, as God's people, marked by rejoicing? is Is our church identity involved rejoicing? Is our small group marked by rejoicing? When I come into this place for a worship service, am I rejoicing? When I sing the lyrics, are, are, are the words drawing my heart to the truth of who God is, and am I rejoicing? And, and here's a good challenge. When I look at what's coming this week, regardless of the circumstances, am I rejoicing about the week ahead? If not, why not? So I just want to offer three suggestions of why we might not be rejoicing because we should be. First uh, suggestion is, maybe you've forgotten who our God is. Maybe you've been distracted by the world, you've been compromising, you've been pursuing other things, and you've let the busyness take your eye off of Christ. You're distracted, and you've just forgotten who our God is. And it's really hard to rejoice when you've forgotten our hope. So I trust that this uh, passage in the book of Esther, it's a reminder to you, like, this is clear. It doesn't matter how dark it is. Our God never fails. He never has, and he never will. Do you remember the Exodus? Do you remember the walls of Jericho falling down? Do you remember the cross? Do you remember when your eyes were opened the first time, and it finally made sense that you were a sinner in need of a Savior, and you humbled yourself before a holy God, and he extended grace to you? Remember who you are in Christ. Remember who it is we serve and rejoice today. That's reason number one. Reason number two that you might not be rejoicing is you are in sin right now and you're hiding from God. And like me just saying that, you probably know what it is. Maybe it's bitterness or anger, pride. Maybe it's sexual sin. You've been doing things you shouldn't do. You've been thinking things you shouldn't think. You've been saying things you shouldn't say, and you've been going places you shouldn't. And you aren't rejoicing because you feel the weight of your sin, and it prevents you from walking in the joy of the Lord. So I've got a wonderful reminder for you. This is 1 John 1, 9. It's true. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to clean us from all unrighteousness. It's all true. And it's so clear. So repent again today and rejoice in hope today. And that leads us to our last reason why you may not be rejoicing today, and that's because you're not saved. You are still under the law of sin and death, and you know it. You have no reason to rejoice in hope because there is no hope apart from Christ, and he is not your Lord or Savior. Our world gives so many places for us to place our hope, and it's all false And you might be sitting there thinking, it's just fine. I I think it'll be okay. But like, are you certain? Is your hope today worldly hope? Like, it's just a game of chance. Are you fumbling around in the dark and you're just hoping that you make it out okay, but you really have no idea? Like, if, if that's you, listen, there's no hope 
apart from the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The only way out of the darkness, the only way that the law of sin and death is reversed is by Jesus' death and resurrection. It's the only way. So turn from your sin, turn to Jesus Christ, and rejoice like today. It's such good news. Clarity in the darkness. He gives grace to the humble, so I will pray fervently. I want more. He frees us from the curse of the law, so I will rejoice in hope. And lastly, he faithfully keeps his promises, so I will share the gospel urgently. He faithfully keeps his promises, so I will share the gospel urgency, or urgently. You can imagine, uh, like, among, like right now, among the, not right now today, right now in the book of Esther, among the, all the fasting and the weeping and the lamenting taking place all throughout this massive empire, maybe the words of, the, of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 17, they might have been read, they might have been recited, maybe even used in prayer. Now, Genesis 17:8 says this, and I, the Lord, I the Lord will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is the future the Jewish people longed for, the promised land, the promised kingdom. And this is the vision of hope for Esther and Mordecai. This is the faith that Mordecai held on to. This is the reason for Esther's boldness, this promise. And for us today, we have a clear picture too of what it will look like. We see this in Revelation 22, 1 to 5, because we are the people of God. The church says this, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and, its, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And listen to this verse 5. And night, darkness, will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is our inheritance, but only for those who hear and respond to the good news of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel has to get out because God promises that it will get out. One of those promises you can actually find in Psalm 86 is verses 9 and 10. Psalm 86, 9 to 10, it says this, all the nations you have made, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. So how else does that day happen unless the word gets out? And, and what a day that will be when all the nations glorify God together for eternity. Like, we long to see that day, and we can plead to see that day desperately and fervently because God promised that day. And so we must get the word out. We're going to close with this. This is the final section of chapter 8. We're just going to see, like, what happens when that message gets out and the light switches on in the darkness. Verse 14. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. 
Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a, golden, a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves to be Jews, declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Think about this, this picture. Once there was darkness, like pitch black hopelessness, and now there is light and hope. God was with them the whole time. He faithfully keeps his promises. They haven't even won a battle yet. This is just the message alone, and it brings so much hope. And the hope leads to so much rejoicing because they know what happens in chapter 9. And this message also brings a realization to the rest of the nation. Like, pick your side. The God of the Jews is moving. It's clear, and it is futile to oppose this God. And so we see people starting to turn and declare themselves to be Jews in response to this news. Like, what a picture. And, and, And like, listen, this kind of response... The joy seen in God's people, the turning away from other gods, the gods of the rest of the world to worship the one true God, this amazing grace and mercy is what always happens when the news gets out. He gives grace to the humble and freedom from the curse of the law, so there is rejoicing everywhere the message goes. Clarity in the darkness. It doesn't matter how dark it gets. These things are always true. Listen, they're always true. He faithfully keeps his promises. He frees us from the curse of the law. And he gives grace to the humble. So we must pray fervently according to his promises. We must rejoice in hope because of this amazing grace. And we must share the gospel urgently because we long to see light shine in the darkness. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we just thank you for your word. It is so incredible that you would reveal yourself to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for the clarity that you give us. God, you give grace to the humble, so please humble us before you and extend more grace. You shine light in the darkness, God, so show us your glory. Remind us of your sacrifice. Just open our eyes and do what we can't do so that we can see you moving. And remind us of the hope that we have so we can rejoice right now. God, we long for the lost to be saved, but give us a desire to see more people come to know you. Give us boldness to share the gospel. Give us conviction and and confidence to desperately come before your throne and plead with you to do what you've promised, because you must. It's who you are. We praise you, and we lift your name high. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.